right. Good evening, everyone. It's great to uh, see everyone here this evening. Um, wanted to welcome you to Narrative Medicine Rounds. I'm Deepu Gowda. I'm a general internist here at Columbia University, and I'm also the director of Foundations of Clinical Medicine Tutorials. It's the course in the medical school where we work with first and second year students, where we teach them the advanced medical interview, we teach them the physical exam, so students for the first time are putting stethoscopes in their ears, seeing how that feels, and they're placing the other end on a patient's chest and hearing the heart for the first time in their lives. It's a really transformative experience for the students, and it's a real privilege to work with students at that time. It's also the time when the students go to the bedside and they get a chance to experience taking the history from the patient who's sick, who's in the hospital, and they start to witness the depths and mysteries of receiving accounts of illness from our patients. Um, and how did I get involved in this work with narrative medicine? I actually met Rita Sharon when I was an intern um, here at Columbia, and I was involved with her her program in narrative medicine and with her basically working with my patients and writing about their stories. Um, I had a chance to go to the homes of several of my patients and take photographs of them and share those photos with them. And so I've been continu continuing my involvement with the program in narrative medicine throughout the years and has deeply enriched my own appreciation of my patients and patient care. And I must say it has continued to inform our curriculum as well. Um, much of our curriculum in the first and second year, definitely, but on an ongoing basis, it's really influencing the way we train our students in the clinical years as well. So it's, it's a real privilege and an honor to be here with you um, as host of Narrative Medicine Rounds this year. Um, and in thinking about how we'll move forward with, with Narrative Medicine Rounds, I just wanted to uh, mention a couple things that are going to be coming up. Um, in October, uh, there's going to be an issue launch for Granta Magazine um, about medicine, is that correct? Um, in November, Will Reiser, who's a screenwriter uh, for 5050, will join us and talk about his experience uh, working with that script. And as, as you know, folks who have seen that film deals with, with illness. In spring, the author, um, Colm Tobin, will be with us. Um, and philosopher Anthony Apaya, who is at Princeton, will be with us also in spring. And the chief of psychiatry of Sloan Kettering, William Breedford, will be with us in spring as well. Um, so now I want to hand the podium over to Maura Spiegel. Uh, Maura Spiegel is a professor of English at Columbia, and she teaches film and writing to Columbia students and to students at Barnard. She also works with our second year students teaching them film. And I had the opportunity to actually sit in on that class with her, and it was fantastic. Um, and, uh, and Maura is also one of the founding members of the program in narrative medicine, and she's one of the core faculty in the program in narrative medicine as well. Philip Lopate has been delivering narrative medication for a long time now with something like 15 books, among them novels, poetry, film criticism, a gorgeous study of the Manhattan waterfront, and remarkable and cherished books of personal essays, a genre he is responsible for reviving. He himself. He brought the personal essay back into circulation, drawing on Montaigne and Hazlitt and Emerson. 
He notes in one essay that booksellers had trouble figuring out where to stock his first collection of personal essays. Autobiography, self-help, short stories. Nowadays, there is no question of where to stock personal or nonfiction essays. There are now MFA programs in the genre. Indeed, Philip is the director of just such a program at Columbia, where he also teaches writing. His work has been recognized by many honors and awards, including a Guggenheim Fellowship, a New York Public Library Center for Scholars and Writers Fellowship, two NEA grants, and two New York Foundation for the Arts grants. He is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the NYU Institute for the Humanities. He has touched our lives in other ways, too. A cinephile from his early days, see his wonderful essay on, quote, the heroic age of movie going. He was a long time on the selection committee of the New York Film Festival, which is just an incredibly powerful, interesting, influential position. Born and raised in Brooklyn, a son of Columbia College, he is truly urbane in all the great meanings of that word. Witty and unsentimental, Philip is a truth teller and a person of so many different corners, back rooms, seemingly boundless re, uh, creative and mental resources. His perspicacious and gentle misanthropy finds grist in our unexpected foibles. He writes in, his, in one of his most famous essays, quote, over the years I have developed a distaste for the spectacle of joie de vivre, the knack of knowing how to live. In another piece, he tells the hilarious and gripping story of directing elementary school children in a production of Uncle Vanya. As Philip notes, quote, the characters in Chekhov's plays are, tor are tormented by the thought that they are misspending their lives and that perhaps it is already too late. Their ambitions have led nowhere. They are stagnating. They reach for a romantic solution but fall in love with the wrong person. Each thinks himself or herself the noble exception to a landscape of utterly monotonous banality. To no one's surprise, Chekhov is hardly a staple of the elementary school repertoire. <laughs> Philip is, as I expect you will hear, one of those rare adults who speaks to children the way he speaks to adults, his gorgeous daughter included. As a young man, he worked in schools with children for 12 years, resulting in his classic book, Being with Children. He is a go-to person, an expert in all the things I personally love best, cities, movies, writers, and the quirks of human behavior, his, yours, and mine. In his work and in his life, he fulfills one Talmudic injunction to the good man, to love life and seek virtue. Philip Lopez. Thank you. Uh, Mara is an old friend of mine, so you have to take what she says with a grain of salt. Um, I'm here at Mara's behest, uh, and uh, thank you, Scott and Deepa and Mara, uh, and, and thank you all for coming. Uh, there are some uh, empty chairs in the front if people would like to occupy them. Um, I'm going to read two pieces, uh, both of which involve medicine on some level. Uh, the first uh, is uh, 
about the birth of my daughter, Delivering Lily, which appeared uh, in my book, uh, Portrait of My Body. And the second uh, is called The Lake of Suffering and will appear in a new collection called Portrait Inside My Head, which will appear uh, in February. Delivering Lily. Ever since expectant fathers were admitted into delivery rooms a few decades ago, they have come armed with video cameras and awe. Before I became a father, I often heard men describe seeing the birth of their baby as transcendental, the greatest experience in their lives. They would recall how choked up they got, even boast about their tears. It sounded kitschy, like the ultimate sunrise. Being a non-transcendentalist with suspicions moreover about my affective capacities, I was unsure how I would react. One had seen birthing scenes often enough in movies, how much more surprising could the reality be? I wondered, as someone who used to pass out at the sight of my own blood-filling syringes, would I prove useless and faint? Or would I rise to the occasion and be so moved into the bargain that at last I could retire those definitions of myself as a detached skeptic and accept the mensch allegedly underneath? Whatever reactions would befall me, I prepared myself for a minor role. The star of any birth is the mother, her co-star, baby, her supporting leads, the medics. At Nativity, every father feels himself a Joseph. September 16, 1994, around four in the afternoon, I came across my wife, Cheryl, lying on the couch. She said she had spotted earlier and wondered if this teaspoon's worth of sanguineous discharge could be what the books referred to more scarletly as the bloody show. I had already made a date with a friend, poet and fellow Brooklynite, Harvey Shapiro, to attend the end of Yom Kippur services at the local temple, after which I was to bring Harvey back to our house to break the fast together. Harvey would supply the, the traditional challah bread and herring and show the rest of the meal. I promised her I would return with Harvey no later than seven. At the Cane Street Synagogue, the rabbi was taking her own sweet time, and I knew Cheryl would be annoyed if her dinner got cold, so I prevailed on Harvey to leave the service early. Just as well, we were sitting around the table, getting ready to enjoy Cheryl's lamb and baked potatoes, when she pointed mysteriously to her belly. What's up, I asked. I think it's starting, she said. She smiled. If it was indeed smarting, Starting, she could skip her appointment the following week for an artificial induction. The fetus was at a good weight, and the doctors hadn't wanted to take the chance of the placenta breaking down, as happened often with overdue deliveries. Shell had felt sad at the thought of being artificially induced, missing the suspense of those first contractions. But now the baby seemed to be arriving on her due date, which meant we were in for the whole natural experience after all. First-time parents alienated from the natural, we had wondered whether we would really be able to tell when it was time. Would we embarrass ourselves by rushing off to the hospital days early at the first false quiver? How to be sure whether the sensations Cheryl reported were THE contractions? As instructed, we began timing them. Meanwhile, our downstairs neighbor popped in and stayed to witness potential history. Harvey, a man in his late 60s and a grizzled veteran of parenthood, distracted us with stories of his boy's infancies while I kept my eye on the second hand. 
The contractions seem to be spaced between seven and five minutes apart. We phoned our obstetricians, plural, because the team consisted of a group of physicians who took turns delivering, depending on who was on call. The office was closed for the Jewish holiday, but the answering service relayed the message to Dr. Harita, who was on call that night. Harita told Cheryl not to come into the hospital until contractions began occurring regularly at five minutes apart and lasted a full minute. As soon as we had clocked two one-minute contractions in a row, I was impatient to start for the hospital. I had no wish to deliver a baby on the kitchen floor. Cheryl seemed calmer as she described her condition to Dr. Arita. It was now 10 p.m., and he told her she would probably be coming into the hospital sometime that night. This phraseology sounded too vague to me. I marveled at my wife's self-possessed demeanor. Cheryl was manifesting her modest, cheerfully plucky side. The side she presented to my friends and to outsiders. It was not a lie, but it gave no hint of her other self, the anxious, morose perfectionist she often produced when we were alone. <laughs> At 10.30, the contractions began to arrive five minutes apart and with more sharpness. Arita beeped, said to come in. I pulled together a few last items, a rubber ball, an ice pack, on the checklist of what to take to the delivery room and saying goodbye to her guests had gotten halfway to the door when I noticed Shell was, as usual, not quite ready to leave the house. <laughs> she decided she had to water the mums. For months, we had debated which neighborhood car service to call for the hour-long trip from Carroll Gardens to Mount Sinai Hospital on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Shell, a superb driver with no faith in my own lesser automotive skills, had even considered taking the wheel herself when the time came. Now suddenly she turned to me and said, you drive, just don't speed. I maneuvered the car with caution over the Brooklyn Bridge, then up the FDR Drive, while Cheryl spoke happily of feeling empowered and in control. The contractions, she said, were not that painful. I like these intense experiences that put you in contact with life and death, she said. Premature bravado, I thought, but kept this to myself. <laughs> Glad to have her chatting confidently away, it meant she wouldn't have as much chance to find fault with my driving. <laughs> we parked the car in the hospital's indoor lot. Cheryl began walking very slowly up the ramp, holding her back. I can't walk any faster, she snapped. The first sign of a change in mood. As if responding to an unspoken criticism she sensed me making about her pace, when in fact I was stumbling all over myself to support her. It was close to midnight as we entered the eerily quiet Klingenstein Pavilion. I approached the security guard, busy flirting with a nurse's aide, for directions. We had pre-registered weeks before to avoid red tape at zero hour. After signing in, we were directed down a long, creepy corridor into birthing room C. Mount Sinai Hospital is one of the largest maternity wards in the country, which is one reason we chose it, but suddenly its very magnitude made us uneasy. We no longer felt dramatic or special but merely one more on an assembly line that was popping babies up and down the hall. <laughs> the expectant couple was deposited in room C and left alone. It would be difficult to describe room C except in regard to absences. It was not cozy, it was not charming, it was not tiny, it was not big, it was not even decrepit, it had nothing for the eye to fasten on. It was what you expected, more or less, of an anonymous hospital room with a quick turnover. But Cheryl, I sensed, had hoped for more, more ambience, amenities, something for the money. 
A visual designer by trade, she could, I know, be preternaturally sensitive to new environments. Like a bride who finds herself in a nondescript wedding chapel, Joan may have long nurtured a fantasy of the ideal first-time birthing chamber, and something told me this was not it. Often I allow myself to be made captive of my wife's moods, registering in an instant her first signs of discontent and trying, usually without success, to gentle her out of it. I suspect this catering to her anxiety, if only by playing the optimist to her pessimist, is really laziness on my part. It saves me the trouble of having to initiate emotions of my own. Shell was given a hospital gown to wear. The moment she put it on, her confidence evaporated. She became an object, a thing to cut open. I cast about for ways to regain our light mood in the car, but it was no use. Let's get out of this room. It gives me the willy, she said. We went for a walk around the ward, opening doors like naughty children and peering inside. Our best discovery was a conference room, dark and coffee-machined and air-conditioned, freezing, in fact, which suited her just fine. We hid out for 15 minutes in this non-medical haven, but her contractions eventually drove us back to room C. Cheryl lay down. She took an instant dislike to her birth, saying, I don't like this bed, and fiddling with the dials to raise and lower it. An aversion, I thought, to proneness itself, which brought with it the surrender of her last sense of control. I turned on the TV to distract her. The second half of Working Girl with Melanie Griffith was on. Cheryl said she didn't want to hear the dialogue. I was just to keep the sound loud enough to provide a background of white noise. This was certainly a temperamental difference between us. If I had been giving birth, whatever the ordeal, I think I would have wanted the dialogue as well as the visuals of the movie on television. <laughs> but I obliged. Besides, we had already seen it. For some reason, I had imagined I being swamped by medical personnel the moment we entered the hospital. We had not anticipated these quarter hours of waiting alone without instructions. We sat about like useless tourists who arrive in an economy hotel after a long trip, too tired to attempt the streets of a foreign city, yet too hemmed in by the unlovely room to enjoy a siesta. How glad we were to see Dr. Arena walk in. A silver mustache, suavely Latin, aristocratic type, he was one of Shell's favorites on the team. She had been instructed to establish a rapport with all four obstetricians, since you never knew who was going to be on call during the actual delivery. Shell had once admitted to me she thought Arita handsome, which made me a little jealous of him. He wore the standard teal green cotton scrubs with property of Mount Sinai Hospital printed on the material, still wrinkled, pulled straight from the dryer, no doubt. In former times, they would have been crisply ironed to maintain authority and morale. And improbably, he had on a shower cap, which suggested he had come straight from surgery. This fashion accessory, I was happy to see, reduced somewhat his matinee idol appeal. <laughs> it was Dr. Arita who had months before performed the amniocentesis, which ascertained, among other things, that a baby was to be a girl. Arita had a clinical terseness, never talking five words, just never taking five words to say what four could accomplish. He asked the patient if she wanted Demerol to help her sleep and cut the pain. Cheryl had her speech already. No, I don't want Demerol. Demerol will make me groggy. It'll turn my brain to mush, and I hate that sensation. All right, if you change your mind, let me know, he said. With those succinct words, he exited. From time to time, a nurse would see how the patient was getting by, or the resident on the floor would pop in and say, you're doing great, you're doing great. 
Increasingly, Charles wasn't. Her contractions had become much more intense, and she began making a gesture with her hands of climbing the wall of pain, reaching her arms toward the ceiling. Finally, she cried out, Painkiller! Painkiller! Demoral! <laughs> I ran to fetch the resident. I'd give it to my wife, he said, which seemed to soothe Charles somewhat. Exhausted by her pain, she had entered a cone of self-absorption, and only a doctor's or nurse's words seemed able to reach her. She had tuned me out, I thought, except as a potential irritant, a lowly servant, who was not doing his job. More ice, she said, rattling the cup as though scornful of the lousy service in his joint. <laughs> During prenatal Lamaze pep talks, the husband was always being built up as an essential partner in the birthing process. This propaganda about the husband's importance, the misapplied fallout of equal sharing of domestic responsibilities in modern marriage, struck me as bunk, since the husband's parturian chores appeared menial at best. One of my spousal duties was to replenish the ice that Cheryl sucked on or rubbed across her forehead. Throughout the night, I made a dozen of these ice runs, dashing into the kitchenette and filling the cup with chips. Back in the room, Cheryl would cry out, ice, and then ice, ice, with mounting urgency, as though the seconds between her request and my compliance were, in, were an eternity, marking my bottomless clumsiness. I was rushing as fast as I could, though I must confess that when someone yells at me to fetch something, or perform any manual action, it releases a slight physical hesitation on my part. <laughs> Perhaps no longer than 1.5 seconds, but this 1.5 delay was enough to drive Cheryl wild. It is, you might say, the 1.5 second factor that makes conjugal life so continuously absorbing. <laughs> also, if I gave her a piece she deemed too small or too large, she would berate me in tones of, how could you be so stupid? This irritableness went on for hours. Her underlying reproach seemed to be that I was not hooked into her brain, was not able to anticipate her needs through ESP or heightened sensitivity, and she would have to waste precious breath articulating them. I would occasionally try to ease the tension by giving her a neck rub or caressing her hand, all recommended consolations by the Lamaze instructor. She shook me off as if I were a cockroach. <laughs> We husbands had been instructed as well to make eye contact with our wives. But whenever I tried to show acquired the look of a runaway horse made acutely distressed by an unwanted obstacle in her path. Sadly, I was not sufficiently generous to rise above feelings of being unfairly attacked. Days later, it surprised me to hear Cheryl telling people I had been wonderful during labor, like a rock. Why, if this was so, I asked her, had she been so mean to me at the time? <laughs> She explained rather reasonably that she was just taking her pain and putting it on me as fast as possible. <laughs> Sometimes during contractions, she would literally transfer her pain to me by gouging my leg. <laughs> Mistakenly thinking she was attached to my foot, I offered it to her, only to have it pushed away. No, not the foot. I don't want the foot. I want the hand, she screamed. <laughs> Being abnormally sensitive to smells all during pregnancy, she had picked up an unpleasant odor from my socks. <laughs> What she liked best, it turned out, was to grip my trousers belt and yank hard. Eventually, we worked out a routine. As soon as she started climbing a contraction, I would jump out of my chair, which was on her left side, run over to her right side, and stand beside her as she pulled and thrashed at my belt for the duration of the spasm. All the while, I would be 
counting off every five seconds during the contraction. I was not entirely sure what purpose I served by counting aloud in this fashion. They had told us husbands to do so in Lama's class in connection with certain breathing exercises, but since we had thrown these exercises out the window soon after coming to the hospital, why, I wondered, was it necessary to keep up a count? I should explain that we had never been ideal Lama's students. <laughs> Too preoccupied with our lives to practice the breathing regularly at home, or perhaps unable to overcome the feeling that it was a bit silly. When the actual labor came, it was so unremitting that we could not be bothered trying to execute these elegant respiratory tempi. It would be like asking a drowning woman to waltz. Shell continued to breathe willy-nilly. That seemed enough for both of us. I can hear the Lamaze people saying, yes, but if only you had followed our instructions, it would have gone so much easier. In any event, I would call out, I would call out bogus numbers to please Shell, sensing that the real point of this exercise was for her to have the reassurance of my voice, measuring points on the arc of her pain as proof that I was equally focused with her on the same experience. In spite of or because of this excruciating workout, we were both getting very sleepy. The wee hours of the morning from 2 to 6 a.m. saw the surreal merging of agony with drowsiness. Shell would be contorted with pain, and I could barely stop from yawning in her face. She too would doze off between contractions, waking suddenly as though finding herself on a steep ascending roller coaster. She would yell, Ow! I'd snap awake, stir at my watch, call out a number, rush to the other side of the bed, and present my belt for yanking. <laughs> when it was over, I would go back to my chair and nod off again to the sound of some ancient TV rerun. I recall Eric Estrada hopping on a motorcycle and chips, and Hawaii Five-O's leading music, and early morning Catholic dreams punctuated by a long spate of CNN discussing the imminent invasion of Haiti, then the repeat of a CBS news show featuring Dan Rouse's interview with the imperturbable dictator, Raul Cedrus, and ice, ice! During the long night, Shaw put her head against my shoulder and I stroked her hair for a long while. This tenderness was as much a part of the experience as the irritation, though I seem to recall it less. It went without saying that we loved each other, we're tied together, and perhaps the true meaning of intimacy is not to have to put on a mask of courtesy in situations like these. Demerol had failed to kill the pain. Shaw began screaming, painkiller, painkiller, help, in that telegraphic style dictated by her contractions. I tracked down the resident and got him to give her a second dose of Demerol. But less than an hour after, her pain had reached a, a knuckle-biting pitch beyond Demerol's ministrations. At six in the morning, I begged the doctors to administer an epidural, which would numb Shaw from the waist down. An epidural, the open sesame we had committed to memory in the unlikely event of unbearable pain, was guaranteed to be effective. But the doctors tried to defer this remedy as long as possible because the, num the numbness in her legs would make it harder to push the baby out during the active phase. My mind was too fatigued to grasp ironies, but it perked up at this word active, which implied that all the harsh turmoil Shola and I had undergone for what seemed like forever was merely the latent, passive phase of labor. <laughs> the problem, the reason the labor was taking so long, was that while Shell had entered the hospital with a membrane 80% effaced, her cervix was still very tight, dilated only one centimeter. From midnight to about five in the morning, the area had expanded from one to only two centimeters, she needed to get to 10 centimeters before delivery could occur. To speed the process, she was now given an inducement drug, proactin, 
a very small amount, since this medication is powerful enough to cause seizures. The anesthesiologist also showed up to an IV for an anesthetic, which was to be administered by drops, not all at once, so that it would last longer. Blessedly, it did its job. Around 7 in the morning, Shell was much calmer thanks to the epidural. She sent me out to get some breakfast. I never would have forgiven myself if I had missed the baby's birth while dallying over coffee, but Shell's small dilation encouraged me to take the chance. Around the corner from the hospital was a Greek coffee shop, Peter's, where I repaired and ate a cheese omelet and read the Morning Times. I can't remember if I did the crossword puzzle. Knowingly, I probably did, relishing those quiet 40 minutes away from the hospital and counting on them to refresh me for whatever exertions lay ahead. Back on the floor, I ran into Dr. Raymond Sandler, Shell's favorite obstetrician on the team. Youthfully gray-haired with a melodious South African accent and kind brown eyes, he said the same things the other doctors did, but they came out sounding warmer. Now, munching on some food, he said, she looks good. Sandler thought the baby would come out by noon. If so, delivery would occur during his shift. I rushed off to tell Cheryl the good news. Momentarily not in pain, she could still not eat or drink anything. I held her hand and she smiled weakly. Our attention drifted to the morning talk shows. Cheryl had long ago permitted me to turn up the volume. Red-headed Mary Lou Hennon was asking three gorgeous soap opera actresses how they kept the zip in their marriage. What were their secret ways of turning on their husbands? One had the honesty to admit that ever since the arrival of their baby, sex had taken a back seat to exhaustion and nursing. I liked her for saying that, wondering at the same time what sacrifices were in store for Cheryl and me. Mary Lou, I had never watched her show before, but now I felt like a regular, moved on to the question, what first attracted each woman to her husband? His tight buns, one of the women said. The audience loved it. I glanced over at Cheryl to see how she was taking this, she was leaning to one side with a concentrated expression of oncoming nausea, her normally beautiful face looking drawn, hatchet thin. She seemed to defy the laws of perspective, a jeer committee face floating above a Botero stomach. We were less like lovers at that moment than like two soldiers who had marched all night and fallen out panting by the side of the road. The titillations of the TV show could have come from another planet, so far removed did it feel from us. That Eros had gotten us here in the first place seemed a rumor at best. Suddenly, in this antiseptic, torture-witnessing cubicle, I tried to recover the memory of sexual feeling. I thought about how often we'd made love in order to conceive this baby, every other night, just to be on the safe side, during the key weeks of the month. At first we were frisky, reveling in it, like newlyweds. Later it became another chore to perform, like moving the car for ultimate size of street parking. <laughs> but with the added fear that all our efforts might be in vain. Shell was 38, I was 50. We knew many other couples around our age who were trying, often futilely, to conceive. A whole generation, it sometimes seemed, of careerists who had put off childbearing for years, now wanted more than anything a child of their own and were deep into sperm motility tests, in vitro fertilizations, and the lot. After seven months of using the traditional method, and suffering one miscarriage in the process, we were just about to turn ourselves over like lab rats to the fertility experts when Cheryl got pregnant. This time it took. Whatever torment labor brought, we could never forget for a moment how privileged we were to be here. You've got to decide about her middle name, Charles said, with groggy insistence, breaking the silence. Okay, just relax, we will. Elena, Francesco, come on, Philip, we've got to get this taken care of or we'll be screwed. 
we won't be screwed. If worse comes to worse, I'll put both names down. But we have to make up our minds. We can't just, well, which name do you prefer? I can't think straight now, she said. A new nurse came on, a day shift, a strong, skillful West Indian woman named Jackie, who looked only about 40, but who told us later that she was a grandmother. As it turned out, she would stay with us to the end, and we would become abjectly dependent on her, this stranger who had meant nothing to us the day before, and whom we would never see again. At nine centimeters dilation, and with Jackie's help, the first pushes started. Pretend you were going to the toilet, Jackie told Sean, who obeyed, evacuating a foul-smelling liquid. She made a bowel movement. That's good, Sandler commented in his reassuring way. Jackie wiped it up with a towelette, and we waited for the next contraction. Jackie would say, with an island accent, push, push to the bottom, calling to my mind that disco song, push, push in the bush. <laughs> Shell would make a supreme effort, but now a new worry arose. The fetal monitor was reporting a slower heartbeat after each contraction, which suggested a decrease in the baby's oxygen. You could hear the baby's heartbeat amplified in the room, like rain on a tin roof, and every time the sound slowed down, you panicked. Dr. Sandler ordered a blood sample taken from the infant's scalp to see if she was properly aerating, aerated, getting enough oxygen. In addition, a second fetal monitor was attached to the fetus's scalp. My poor baby, for whom it was not enough to undergo the birth trauma, was having to endure the further insult of getting bled while still in the womb. The results of the blood test were positive. Not to worry, Dr. Sandler said, but just in case he ordered Cheryl to wear an oxygen mask for the remainder of the labor. This oxygen mask frightened us with its bomb shelter associations. How will the baby de be delivered, Cheryl asked, as the apparatus was placed over her face. Will they have to use forceps? Well, that will depend on your pushing, answered Dr. Sandler, and he left. I did not like the self-righteous sound of this answer, which implied that it was ours to screw up and get right. We had entrusted ourselves to the medical profession precisely so that they could take care of everything for us. Often, after a push, the towel left underneath the shell was spattered with blood. Jackie would swoop it up, throw it to the floor, kick it out of the way, raise Cheryl's lower half from the bed, and place a fresh towel underneath. The floor began to smell like a battleground, with blood and shit underfoot. Push harder, push harder, 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 Jackie chanted in a Barbados accent. And Keep going, keep going, keep going. Cheryl's legs were floppy from the epidural. She reported a feeling of detachment from her body. In order for her to have a counter pressure to push against, I was instructed to lift her left leg and double it against the crook of my arm. This maneuver, more difficult than it sounds, had to be sustained for several hours. A few times I felt that my arm was going to snap and I might end up hospitalized as well. It was probably the hardest physical work I'd ever done. Now nothing compared, of course, to what Cheryl was going through. I feared she would burst a blood vessel. Around 11, Jackie went on her lunch break, replaced by a nurse who seemed much less willing to get involved with her care. A, ten a tense conversation ensued between Sandler and the new nurse. This patient is fully effaced, he said. My other patient is fully too. He sighed, she shrugged, and the next minute we were both, they were both out the door. Left alone with a wife buckling in pain, I felt terrified and enraged. How dare Jackie take a food break now? Couldn't we page her in the cafeteria and tell her to get her ass back here? It was no use I had to guide Cheryl through her contractions as if I knew what I was doing. This meant watching the fetal monitor printout for the start of each contraction, signaled by an elevating line, then lodging her leg against my arm and chanting her through the three requisite pushes per contraction, 
without any firm idea exactly when each was supposed to occur. The first time I did this, I got so engrossed pressing her leg hard against me that I forgot the cheerleading. I have a tendency to fall silent during crises, conserving energy for stock-taking and observation. This time I was brought up short by Shirley yelling at me, how am I supposed to know how long to push? I wanted to answer, I'm not a trained medic, I have no idea myself. The next time, however, I bluffed, push, push in the bottom, doing my best jacket rotation <laughs> until the real jacket came back. Sometime near noontime, Dr. Sandler made an appearance with his colleague, Dr. Schiller, and began explaining the case to her. Schiller had never felt as confident about Laura Schiller as she had about Sandler and Arita, either because Schiller was the only woman on the team, not that Schiller would have agreed with this explanation, or because the two women had simply not had the opportunity to develop a rapport. With a sinking sensation, we began to perceive that Sandler was abandoning us. Actually, he probably would have been happy to deliver Lily if only she had arrived when he had predicted before noon. Now he had to be somewhere else, so he turned the job over to his capable colleague. Dr. Schiller brought in a younger woman, a resident or intern, and they discussed whether the baby was presenting OA or OA, whatever that meant. Now they turned to the expectant mother and got serious. Dr. Schiller proved to be a much tougher coach than Jackie. Come on, Shirley, you can try harder than that, she would say. Shirley's face clouded over with intense effort, her veins stood out, and half the time her push was judged effective, the other half not. I could never fathom the criteria used to separate the successes from the failures. All I knew was that my wife was no shirker, and I resented anyone implying she was. If some of Shirley's pushes lacked vigor, it was because the epidural had robbed her of sensation below, and because the long night of pain wasted on a scarcely increased dilation had sapped her strength. Over the next hour, doctors and patients with them synchronized until something like complete trust developed between them. Schiller cajoled, Shaw responded. We were down to basics. The procedure of birth had never seemed so primitive. I couldn't believe that here we were in the post-industrial era, and the mother still had to push the fetus by monstrously demanding effort, fractions of an inch down the vaginal canal. It was amazing that the human race survived given such a ponderous childbearing method. With all of science's advances, delivering a baby still came down to one of three time-worn approaches, push, forceps, or cesarean. This particular baby, it seemed, did not want to cross the perineum. If the baby's no closer, a few more pushes, Dr. Schiller declared, we're going to have to go to forceps. Forceps would necessitate an episiotomy, a straight surgical cut of the pubic region, to keep it from fraying and tearing further. An episiotomy would also leave Shaw sore and unable to sit for weeks. Knowing that I would probably be accused of male insensitivity and sensing my vote counted marginally at best, I nevertheless expressed a word in favor of forceps. Anything to shorten the ordeal and get the damn baby out. Shaw had suffered painful contractions for 18 hours, she was exhausted, I was spent, and I was dying with curiosity to see my little one. I couldn't take the suspense any longer. Obviously not a legitimate reason. Shell worried that the forceps might dent or misshape the baby's skull. Dr. Schiller explained that the chances of that occurring were very slight given the improved design of modern instruments. Shell pushed as hard as she could three times with the most desperate look in her eyes. No use. I always try to give a woman two hours to push the baby out, but if it doesn't work, then I go to forceps, Dr. Schiller said authoritatively. Shell looked defeated. Okay, we'll try one more time, but now you really have to push. Give me the push of the day. The push of the day must have felt like a tsunami to Lily, but she clung to the side of her underwater cave. They readied the scalpel for an episiotomy. 
I turned away. Some things you can't bear to watch done to a loved one. Dr. Schiller, kneeling down, looked inside Shell and cried out, she's got tons of black hair. Standing over Shell, I could make out nothing inside. The fact that someone else had already peeked into the entranceway and seen my baby's locks made me restless to glimpse this fabled dark-haired creature. The last stage was surprisingly brief and anticlimactic. The doctors manipulated the forceps inside Cheryl, who pushed with all her might. Then I saw the black head come out, followed by a ruddy, squirming body. Baby howled, angry and shocked to find herself airborne in such a place. It was such a relief, I began to cry. Then I shook with laughter. All that anguish and grief and triumph just to extract a writhing jumbo shrimp? <laughs> the doctor passed the newborn to her mother for inspection. She was, I may say objectively, very pretty. Looked like a little Eskimo or Mexican babe, with her mop of black hair and squinting eyes, something definitely third world about her. An overgrown head on a scrawny trunk, she reversed her mother's disproportions. A kiss from Cheryl, then she was taken off to the side of the room and laid on a weighing table, seven pounds, four ounces, and given an APGAR inspection by Jackie under a heat lamp. Lily Elena Francesca Lopez had all her fingers and toes, all her limbs, and obviously sound vocal cords. She whirred like a whooper wool, then brayed in and out like an affronted donkey. Abandoned. For while Shell was being stitched up by Dr. Schiller, who suddenly seemed to me the best doctor in the world, Lily, the jewel, the prize, the cause of all this tumult, lay on the table, crying alone. I was too intimidated by hospital procedure to go over there and comfort her, and Cheryl obviously couldn't move, and Jackie had momentarily left the room. So Lily learned right away how fickle is the world's attention. Dr. Schiller told Charlotte she would probably have hemorrhoids for a while as a result of the episiotomy. Charlotte seemed glad enough that she had not died on the table. She had done her job, delivered up safely the nugget inside her. I admired her courage beyond anything I'd ever seen. Happy, relieved, physically wrung out, these were the initial reactions. For hours, I realized after the fact, I had been completely caught up in the struggle of labor with no space left over for distancing. But that might have advanced it with the physically demanding nature of assisting a birth and with any transcendental wonderment about it. That night, home from the hospital, I noted in my diary all I could recall. Consulting that entry for this account, I see how blurred my understanding was, or remains, by the minutiae of medical narrative. What does it all mean exactly? An experience on the one hand so shocking and strange, on the other hand so typical, so stupefyingly ordinary. When people say that mothers don't remember the pain of labor, I think they mean that of course they remember, but the fact that the pain recedes next to the blessing of the child's presence on earth. Ah, what I remember most clearly from that long night and day is the agitated pas de deux between Shell and me, holding ourselves up like marathon dancers. She crossed at me for not getting her eyes fast enough, me vexed at her for not appreciating that I was doing my best. Do I hold on to that memory because I can't take in the anomaly of seeing a newborn burst onto the plane of existence and so cut it down to the more mundane pattern of a couple's argument? Or is it because the tension between Cheryl and me that night pointed to a larger truth, that a woman giving birth finds herself inconsolably isolated? Close as we normally were, she had entered an experience into which I could not follow her. The promise of marriage, that we would both remain psychically connected, was broken. I remember Cheryl sitting up half an hour after Lily was born, still trembling and shaking. That's natural for the trembling to last a while, said Dr. Schiller. Weeks afterwards, smiling and accepting congratulations, I continued to tremble from the violence of the baby's birth. 
in a way, I am still trembling from it. The only comparison that comes to mind, strangely enough, is when I was mugged in the street and I felt a tremor looking over my shoulder for months afterward. That time, my back was violated by a knife. This time, I watched Cheryl's body ripped apart by natural forces, and it was almost as if it was happening to me. I am inclined to say I envied her and wanted it to be happening to me, to feel that intense and agony for once. But that would be a lie, because at the time, not for one second did I wish I were in Cheryl's place. Orthodox Jews are taken to task with a daily prayer, thank God I am not a woman. And they should be criticized, since it is a crude, chauvinistic thought. But it is also an understandable one in certain situations, and I found myself recently praying something like that, while trying to assist Cheryl in her pushes. Thank God I am not someone else. Thank God I am only who I am. These are the thoughts that simultaneously create and imprison the self. If ego is a poisonous disease, and it is, it is one I unfortunately trust more than its cure. I began as a detached skeptic and was shoved by the long night into an unwilling empathy which saw show as a part of me or me of her for maybe a hundred seconds in all before returning to a more self-protective distance. Detachment stands midway between two poles. At one end, solipsism, at the other end, wisdom. Those of us who are only halfway to wisdom know how close we still lean toward the chillness of solipsism. It is too early to speak of Lily, this charming young lady, willful, passionate, and insisting on engagement on her own terms, who has already taught me more about unguarded love and the dread meaning of responsibility than I ever hoped to learn, may finally convince me there are other human beings as real as myself. This other piece, um, which probably is not quite as funny, The Lake of Suffering. About a week and a half after my baby daughter Lily was born, she began to thaw up. Usually a gentle gush of whitish stuff would flow down her chin, and a minute later she would seem peaceful, no worse than before. Sometimes, however, the vomiting was harsher. Since Shell was breastfeeding Lily, she wondered whether something was wrong with her technique, like the angle of tilt, the pillow arrangement or with the consistency of her milk. We had been told that all babies spit up. Part of the problem was that, Lily being our first child, we did not know how to distinguish between normal postnatal post events and symptoms that would indeed alarm us. For instance, we rushed Lily to our amiable neighborhood pediatrician, Dr. Edna, because blood seemed to be collecting in the umbilical area. It turned out this was a natural result of the umbilical plug falling out. Or, when Lily got the hiccups, another benign occurrence, Cheryl had me read aloud all the hiccups entries in the child care manuals on our nightstand to see what we could do to stop it. Nothing. As the book's entries did not alter when left unattended, I didn't see why I needed to read every word aloud each time Lily started hiccuping. But it was indicative of how everything that first week made us nervous. We had amassed a shelf full of baby books in the time between the start of Cheryl's pregnancy and Lily's arrival. My intellectualized response to any unknown situation is to buy a book. And since Cheryl designs books for a living, she also finds security in them. So we immersed ourselves in Dr. Spock, Penelope Leach, and the What to Expect series, among others. I could write a whole essay about these infant care books 
as a peculiar literary subcategory, the antithesis of the horror genre. Suffice to say that a butterscotch of reassurance covers them. They address new parents as a set of middle-class worrywarts, counseling you that your fears are natural, even your ambivalences are natural. Leach goes so far as to empathize with the husband who resents ceding oral monopoly of his wife's breast, but that underneath you have nothing to worry about. Spinal taps, chronic illness, oncology, and death are not listed in their indexes. They are addressed to well baby care. As soon as the reality sank in that we had an ill baby on our hands, I closed these volumes never to consult them again. But I am getting ahead of myself. Before plunging into the story of that first cruel year in the hospital, I want to pause and consider why we had so wanted a child. During my first marriage, my wife Carol and I were in our 20s, young and poor and ambitious to become writers and in no hurry to take on parental responsibilities. Our fertility seemed more a curse than a blessing, necessitating, as it did, two abortions. By the second abortion, the marriage was already tottering. I left it to embark on 21 years of bachelorhood. However staunch my political support may be for abortion rights, I eventually began to regret the two chances for fathering I had personally let slip up, and to feel at times keenly the absence of those children who might have been mine. This feeling was accentuated by 10 years of working with elementary school kids from kindergarten to sixth grade, teaching them writing, theater, and filmmaking. I had stumbled into the teaching profession as a way to support my own writing habit, not expecting to be good with kids, to my surprise, I seem to be, enjoying their odd, unpredictable ways, and I drew on their experiences from my book, Being With Children. When parents came to pick up their kids after school, I'd gush about how much fun I had with their Johnny on Jill during the day, and they would invariably say, yeah, that's because you don't have to take care of them after three o'clock. I wasn't sure that was true. Their remarks became a challenge I was eager to accept. I certainly liked being around children, listening in on their chatter, and keeping up with their quirky behaviors. Why wouldn't I respond fairly well to my own? By my late 30s, I was sold on having a child. The problem was I first had to find a wife. By no means had I worked through the neurotic patterns of mistrust, hostility, and abandonment that my mother and father had passed down to us as masculine-feminine relations. So I continued to stumble from one woman to the next until at 47, I met Cheryl. Widowed young, she had a deep understanding of what matters. She was a painter, an award-winning book designer, creative, intelligent, irresistibly attractive, humane, kind, and 34. That last was important. I wanted a wife of childbearing age. Everything else seemed to be in place. I had established myself as a writer, had a full professorship at a local university, and felt an expansive willingness to take on this new work of bringing up baby. To be honest, my professional life had gone somewhat on automatic pilot. I could no longer be motivated by fear of failure, as in my younger years. I had written eight books, taught over 20 years, and anticipated more of the same. I wanted something else, some new adventure to engross me, a child. My wife was at first hesitant. She worried about what might happen to her career. She feared legitimately that much of the burden of child-rearing would fall on her, and that she might get lost in the process. Moreover, having been widowed the first time, and wanting to make sure the new relationship would survive, she preferred to spend our first years of marriage life together, just as a couple. A reasonable request, I thought. I could wait, not indefinitely, but... When she had asked before the wedding, what if I never want to have children? Would you still want to marry me? I had swallowed hard and said yes, though in the back of my mind I gambled that she would come around eventually. 
which she did. A few years into the marriage, she told me she was ready. She helped to get pregnant in time for my 50th birthday party, giving me what she knew I wanted most in the world. As soon as she made up her mind, her eagerness for a child outstripped my own. It took us nine months to conceive, not long as these things go, but long enough to plunge us into high anxiety. Two months after I turned 50, we received the happy news that Cho was pregnant, and on September 16, 1994, she gave birth to Lily. That first week home with the baby, the shock of 18 hours in the delivery room and an episiotomy fresh in our minds, we had no chance to catch our breath before jumping onto the roller coaster. I am well aware that every new parent feels overwhelmed. How much of the initial hysteria would have occurred anyway, even in optimum conditions? This is another form of the question that would later haunt us. What would the experience of parenting have been like if nothing had gone wrong? Already by the end of the first week, Cheryl seemed a confident and placid mother. Twelve days into parenthood, Lily began vomiting. We took her to Dr. Edna to be weighed and found she had lost over a pound since birth. Failure to thrive, those creepy, accusing words, were spoken for the first time, but only as a distant possibility. Dr. Edna thought it might be gastroesophageal reflux. A fan of alternate medicine, she recommended trying chamomile tea, which an Andean tribe fed their babies to calm their stomachs. She also had a supplement breastfeeding with a soy formula, formula twice a day and Pedialyte to prevent dehydration. So I began feeding a bottle to Lily. Shell was critical of my first efforts. I can't believe how tensely you're holding her, she would say. Talk to her. No, not in that dead monotone voice. I'm sure my technique left much to be desired, but it seemed to me adequate to the purpose. Underneath Shell's criticisms was the real fear that unless we fed Lily in a letter-perfect manner, she would vomit. As we later learned, she was regurgitating not because of something so preventable as the wrong bottle angle, but because her system couldn't process protein correctly, a far more serious problem. One Saturday, toward the end of the second week, I offered to watch the baby while Shell made herself breakfast. After giving Lily a feeding, I held her upright for about 40 minutes, as I had been instructed, then let her sleep on the bed. Lily was napping peacefully, when suddenly she woke up and began choking. She turned bright red. I lifted her in my arms to get her upright, but she arched her head rigidly away, choking, fuming, gasping for breath. It was the most frightening thing I'd ever seen. She's going to die, I thought, right in front of me, and I can't do anything. I was also terrified that this was a seizure and began thinking of epilepsy, brain damage. Cheryl, I yelled. I placed my hand under her head for support, but was amazed at the strength of Lily arching away. Cheryl ran up the stairs and entering the room, she said, don't let her arch back so. That's the worst thing in the world. She'll choke on her own vomit. I started to explain that I'd been trying to support her head, but she cut me off shouting, you're killing my baby. I completely understood her accusatory panic, but could not stop myself from feebly defending my child-caring skills. A part of me was prepared to believe that I had caused the whole problem and shrank back, letting Cheryl take over, but the attack seemed to have an involuntary dynamic of its own. Later, the doctors confirmed that head arching during projectile vomiting is a reflex in some infants. Nothing you can do but let it run its course. In retrospect, that red choking baby reminded me of the creature from Alien. I wonder how much horror imagery comes, comes from our terror of the crying newborn. The theory that Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein after losing her baby makes sense to me. I called Dr. Edna, but she was away all weekend. In desperation, I phoned Dr. Lou Monti, a pediatrician connected to Mount Sinai Hospital, where Lily had been delivered. 
He suggested Lily be taken off the breast milk and given nothing but Pinolite, and if she couldn't hold that down, to bring her into the hospital for observation. Lily threw up the Pinolite. We drove to Mount Sinai, turning her over, with relief, I confess, to the high-tech medical team of pediatric gastroenterologists led by Dr. Neil Laleko. Dr. Monty was retained as Lily's pediatrician. Dr. Edna, with a holistic, soothing chamomile, was off the case. The initial diagnosis at Mount Sinai was that Lily had a severe milk-soy allergy. Perhaps a little bit of soy-based formula we had fed her, it only takes a drop, had led to the stripping of her intestinal villi, the hairy coating that aids digestion. The analogy doctors used was it was making a carpet into linoleum. I believe Lily's genetic problem or condition was in place before any of this happened, but giving her the soy milk formula was like feeding her poison. It is not easy for an unscientific layman like myself to explain even now the exact nature of her medical problem, especially since it baffled all her doctors for so long. In the first two years of her life, a good deal of effort was spent in eliminating the possibility that she had some known condition, which however dire, they would have known how to treat, such as pyloric stenosis, cystic fibrosis, lymphatic dysfunction, Crohn's disease, or some autoimmune disorder. They never really did come up with a diagnosis, the closest one being protein-losing enteropathy, a vague way of saying that she had had an intestinal problem with the transfer and absorption of protein. This would cause, this would cause some of the protein she ingested to spill into her bloodstream instead of being absorbed by her cells as food. Testing the blood for albumin measures the degree of protein absorption in the body. We began to live or die by two numbers, Lily's weight and her albumin level. As soon as Lily was admitted to the hospital, my wife made a remarkably heroic and I think correct decision that one of us would stay with the baby at all times. This meant, as it turned out, that Cheryl spent a few years off and on in the hospital, putting her own professional life on hold, though she still managed amazingly in retrospect to produce freelance book designs for Soho Press from the hospital room. She would sleep or try to in the interruptive nocturne of clinics on an army-style cot next to Lily's crib. Some nights I or my mother-in-law Doris would spell her, but for the most part, Shell was there to see that the erratic night staff did not make a mistake with Lily's meds or the machinery. It happened once that a night nurse was about to administer meds intended for a different patient when Cheryl caught it and stopped her. Just as important was the guarantee that Lily would receive as much stimulation as possible, keeping her mentally sharp. We had seen some ward babies left to the check-and-run care of nurses and attendants who would stare listlessly up at the ceiling for hours or keep wailing until someone had a moment to look in on them. Cheryl's vigilance paid off on Lily's behalf, though the sleep deprivation, worry, and fear took a toll on her leaving her exhausted and despairing. If the arrival of children routinely places a couple under pressure, nothing can put more stress on a marriage than a child's illness or life-threatening disease. In our case, each of us had a different way of handling stress. Shells took the form of mastering, of mastering all the physical procedures involved with Lily's care so that she could assist and, in effect, stand in for the night nurse. She became so adept that she probably could have passed a nursing examination and the nurses would often let her do their jobs. But she got furious with any bungling. 
a tigress protecting her cub. She would throw nurses out of the room if they were about to make a mistake, or dismiss interns if they took too long finding a vein to draw Lily's blood, or forbid anyone, even surgeons, from approaching the crib without washing their hands first. She was not afraid of antagonizing the staff. My way of facing the crisis was to stay stoically calm, pleasant, diplomatic, offending no one in authority, to remain upbeat and hopeful. I also tried to play the supportive husband. Though whenever Shell's anxiety led her to lace irritably into me, I withdrew a good deal of my support. But mostly I struggled just to hang on. Before Lily's hospitalization, I'd had my share of childhood traumas, betrayals, unhappy love affairs, and deaths of friends. But in a sense, I'd led a charmed life, in that I always felt strong enough for the circumstances that presented themselves. In fact, I often felt stronger than my circumstances, fantasizing a reserved tank of energy and courage that I might tap into if suddenly I found myself in a grueling or dangerous situation. Faced with the experience of Lily's illness, I quickly went through my reserve tank. My Superman fantasies were ended. I was discovering the irregular nature of courage, two days of heroic pluck, two days of blank despair. Besides, our heroism seemed beside the point. What was needed was patience, a different, more demanding virtue. Now we were in it. I understood what it meant to suffer, really suffer, night and day, to be up to our necks in a lake of suffering. I was commuting in a triangle between Hofstra, my teaching job at the time, on Long Island, Mount Sinai Hospital on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, and our home in Brooklyn, where I fed the cats, looked at the mail, and crashed. Often I would drive to Mount Sinai directly from work, taking the Long Island Expressway to the Midtown Tunnel, then up the FDR Drive to 96th Street, relinquishing any residue of work solace and, professor and professorial dignity the closer I approached the hospital. The neighborhood around Mount Sinai, how well I came to know it. Those sad takeout delis, those bleak bagel sandwich places, the bar and grill restaurants, the florist shop, the five-story tenements with fire escapes along Madison Avenue, the vertical parking garage, the whole borderline gestalt. It seemed fitting that Mount Sinai nested in a no-man's land between the posh apartment buildings below 96th Street and the East Harlem public housing projects that started above 100th Street, because as soon as I entered the hospital complex, I had the feeling that I was nowhere, in a liminal, no-time zone, along with the other mock creatures crawling past the soda machines and the underground tunnels that connected the various wings and pavilions, a whole planet of illness, a leper colony. I would take the elevator up to the fourth floor, Friday nights and Saturdays to honor the Sabbath had stopped automatically on every floor, making way for the gurneys in the elevator and prepare to hold my breath for six, seven, eight hours. The hospital was like a spaceship, no gravity, no up or down, white, weightless. After you had spent a time-crawling morning and afternoon, etherized with small talk and edible meals and diaper changes, putting up with the painted clowns, social workers and clergy who came by on their mercy missions to the children's ward, checking out the art therapy and storytelling room for the 20th time, the doctor would arrive around four on his rounds and everyone would snap to attention. The day would acquire a shape, good or bad, depending on the words he let drop or his tone of voice. A hundred years ago, a baby with Lily's condition would likely have died. Then came the invention of catheter technology, a device surgically attached to a main artery 
which transmitted a slow, steady stream of nutrients to the bloodstream, bypassing the digestive tract entirely. With a catheter inside her, Lily would gain weight regardless. It was like riding an escalator, up, up and up. No more anxiety about failure to thrive. The catheter was a godsend, but it had a tendency to become infected at the entry site after a while, and when that happened, it had to be removed and another artery found. The body has a limited number of arteries for this purpose, a scary thought when considering the future. Catheters also require a sterile environment, extensive tubing, and a semi-stationary pump that has to be monitored regularly, making a patient less portable and a baby more awkward to hold. Cumbersome and daunting as this was, we also disliked the less surgically invasive nasogastric tube, which went down Lily's nose. Not only did the NG tube mar the perfection of her face and give her skin rashes, but it required a nasty insertion procedure. You had to stick a thin NG tube down her nostril and keep pushing until it came to rest in her stomach, all the while with her flailing, screaming, and twisting her head to avoid that unpleasant gagging sensation. She soon figured out how to yank the tube out of her nostril, flick a fingernail under the surgical tape and rip it loose triumphantly. Then we would have to hold it down, ignoring her wails, and reinsert it. The hospital, the hospital universe preoccupied us. Though I still craved the outside world, it began to recede in reality and color, partly as a consequence of our isolation. No one on the outside knew what we were going through, and we couldn't explain it to them. I would get home some nights and find messages on the answering machine from friends and relatives. Tell us what's happening, we can't stand the suspense. They wanted to hear that everything was all right. It wasn't. Some people still didn't know about Lily's illness and would leave messages saying, congratulations, you must be on cloud nine. I would try to get through all these calls as speedily as possible. Shell had designated me the one to stay in touch with and debrief our circle of friends and relatives. But after several such conversations, relaying the same information, I felt awful. I began to suspect people's motives, idle curiosity, schadenfreude. Sometimes little things that were said seemed so insensitive. A friend bragging about how much her child was eating. Another forever mentioning news items about medical breakthroughs that had nothing to do with Lily's illness. Or telling some anecdote about a second cousin who was born with stomach problems and now played tackle for his high school football team. Another saying that if we just fed Lily mashed bananas, all would be well. <laughs> Yet I knew if they didn't call, I would also have felt slighted. I came to realize there was nothing anyone on the outside could say or do that would be right. The only person I could talk to without feeling wounded was my friend Max, who had a little girl with problems even more severe than Lily's. Her disabilities had resulted from a botched delivery, and now she could neither speak, nor walk, nor eat without assistance. When she was born, I thought the situation unimaginably pity pitiable. Now we shared the same vocabulary, boviac catheters, endoscopies, mickeys. Max was my reality check. He told me that when it first happened, he refused to talk on the phone and hated everyone. Now he just hated most people. Friends and relatives, unable to grasp the nature of Lily's difficulty, wanted me to go over the details, which I hated to do. With her, when her problems didn't get solved with dispatch, they told me to change doctors, though we knew we had the best. Lily's chief physician, Dr. Aleko, is one of the top men in pediatric gastroenterology, a brilliant analyst of the facts, and a humane, wise practitioner 
a cultivated savant such as one might encounter in a Balzac novel. He listened to my exasperation with the outside world and said, the problem is a social one. In America, babies are not supposed to be sick. If they're sick, people expect one of two outcomes. One, the baby dies. Two, she gets all better. Americans, he said, don't know how to deal with chronic illness. Of course, Lily was not just a medical rarity, but an increasingly defined, plucky little person whom you couldn't help but fall in love with, a charmer who lured people to in, as one doctor put it. First, and I say this in a, as a completely unbiased father, she was a most startlingly beautiful baby with porcelain skin, flashing dark eyes, long eyelashes, masses of black hair, curled lips, like a porcelain doll, everyone said, and her mother dressed her in outfits accentuating that old-fashioned Victorian look. Second, she had remarkable interpersonal skills. From the moment her eyes could focus, she would fix you with an interested gaze, follow you around the room, react with pleasure or laughter if any opportunity offered, allow herself to be held and hugged by visitors, and generally flatter them with her attention. It is conceivable that babies or small children who undergo, like Lily, the pain of needles, splints, CAT scans, and spinal taps may develop survival skills that enable them to mature faster in order to attract the love of adults. Lily was the pet, the darling of the ward. Sometimes she would be brought up to the nursing station, catheter pump and all, and hang out amid the residents and nurses as they were having conferences, ordering meds or take out food, answering the phones. Her three male physicians competed for her love. The best attendants on the floor, Aloma and Avril from the West Indies and Norma from Chile, were all devoted to Lily, bathed her, changed her, sang to her, helped her stand, encouraged her to take her first steps around the crib. One hospital study, I was told, confirmed that babies perceived as cute received more care than those seen as homely. Lily's beauty and winning ways seemed at times a Lamarckian compensation. In March, Lily looked healthier, and there was talk about going home in a few weeks. Then the lab test came back showing the albumin level had plummeted to 2.1. Three or above was considered healthy. No one knew the reason for the setback. Maybe, maybe they were pushing her too fast. Maybe it was a lab error. I remember vividly an occasion around that time when to cheer us up, one of the best nurses, Suzanne, came in with two gifts, pearl earrings for Cheryl, and a tape of Disney's The Lion King, which had just gone on sale that day. Suzanne wheeled the fourth floor's VCR and TV into the room so that Cheryl, Lily, and I could watch the movie in bed. Cheryl had this specific hopeful vision that, they, that we would all be home someday, nestling on the bed together like three little bears. The Lion King opens with scenes of rejoicing over a newborn, which struck us with bittersweet poignancy. I dozed through the middle. I was so tired these days that I would nod out as soon as you put me in front of a TV. Lily and Shell napped too. When the film was over, Lily seemed restless, so Shell decided to feed her. I prepared the bottle. Lily was crying and agitated as the bottle approached. I thought, something's wrong, let's not do this. But we went ahead anyway, because we felt it important to keep up the habit of oral feeding in preparation for that day when Lily would be taken off catheters or gastric tubes. Shell brought the bottle to Lily's lips, and Lily puked up everything all over her mother's blouse. For mesmerizing spectacle, there was still nothing like Lily throwing up. I was frozen in watcher mode. Get some cloth diapers, get a wet washcloth, do something, cried Cheryl. 
I bustled about, trying not to gag from the sour milk smell of her formula vomited up, and castigate myself. Why didn't I say anything? Warn her not to feed Lily. Well, Shell was the one in charge, I rationalized. I didn't feel I had the authority. But we were always looking to blame each other for Lily's vomiting, as though it was simply a matter of human error. Would that it had been. Shortly after the Lion King episode, we agreed to Dr. Laleko's recommendation that we suspend all feedings. Laleko wanted to regulate strictly the quantities Lily was receiving and did not like these random extra feeds. He also feared that they might exacerbate Lily's reflex tendency to vomit, since liquid was being introduced from the bottle at a far faster rate than drips through the tube. Shola had been resisting his advice, afraid, as it turned out lightly, that if we suspended bottle feedings, it might be more difficult to, take, to get Lily to take food through her mouth later on. Perhaps something else was behind her resistance. She felt bad enough that she could no longer breastfeed Lily. At least she could give her a bottle from time to time and fulfill some of the maternal role of feeding her baby. But we acceded in the end to the doctor's request. No more oral feedings for the time being. Seven months into this ordeal, we wanted desperately to get Lily released from the hospital. That became our main focus. For one thing, she did not seem as sick as many children on the ward, some of whom had leukemia or equally serious diseases. One boy, the child of Hasidic parents, passed away, then a little Hispanic girl, and we did not want to have to witness any more deaths. In plain English, we had had it with the hospital. However kind the staff had been, we wanted out. Lily kept catching colds and getting infections, which set back her progress. In a children's hospital, you pick up every retrovirus and infectious bug. Then she started to do well. Her albumin level had even risen up to four. We had battled with the insurance company for months and finally got it to agree that we were entitled to night nursing if and when we went home. Since Lily was still on a Boviac catheter, she would require constant nursing care during her nocturnal feeds. Finally, the word came down we could leave. The nursing staff threw us a going away party. We drank champagne with funny hats on, packed up the room, and said goodbye to Mount Sinai. I was surprised that Shell did not seem happier. Here a difference between our characters or between fathers and mothers asserted itself. As soon as I ascertained that Lily was not in mortal danger, I breathed a huge sigh of relief, whereas Shell continued to be distraught because there was still no clear explanation what was wrong with her baby. Feeding a child is so basic a part of a mother's functioning that she could not sit still and wait for some far-off improvement. Will this kid ever eat normally, she kept worrying. She fretted if, if Lily's bowel movements started becoming looser and was as attentive to her stools as the old soothsayers to Pharaoh's. She worried if Lily's skin looked blotchy. At the time, I thought her pessimistic, but now I must admit it was Cheryl's acute maternal observation that made her quickly pick up danger signals. Two weeks after we came home, she voiced what I had been thinking but dared not say, that Lily was starting to look puffy. The medical term was edematous, an indication of not absorbing protein well. I'll bet her albumin's fallen, Cheryl predicted grimly. Oh, well, not necessarily, I said. It could just be a cold. A month later, we were back on the ward. All the symptoms had returned one by one. Her albumin had shrunk to 1.9, which only confirmed the external signs, throwing up diarrhea, swelling in the face and fingers, distended stomach, lethargy. Jane, the able chief nurse and our favorite attendants, Aloma, Avril, and Norma, was sorry to see us return, but helped us settle into our old room. We were living a recurring nightmare, back in the trenches. The first day I returned to the hospital, I felt a powerful desire to write the whole story of Lily's illness, 
The words were marching through my head, and writing seemed the only way of releasing the emotions within me. The next day, I felt devastated, had no desire to write, wanted to lie in a fetal position and be fed intravenously myself. Shell this time took it better than I, acted calmly, perhaps because she was at this point a pessimist. I had directed all my energy to getting out of the hospital. We'd done it, I was happy. I felt we had put the whole story, sorry story behind us, and then to go back inside made me crazy. I didn't know what to live for. A healthy lily, of course, but how? Shell admitted to me in private that she was fighting off a major depression. She would do her weeping in the bathroom. She had just enough energy to attend to Lily and the medical professionals, but not to the outside world. Seeing mothers feeding their normal children or pushing strollers in the street would scald her. She had stopped returning friends' phone calls. Other people couldn't give her what she wanted, so she had no interest in them. What do you want from them, I asked. An answer. Make the problem go away. I know it's irrational, but I have so much anger against the world and so much guilt for having borne a sick child. Why guilt, I said. You've nothing to feel guilty for. That's wacky. You're not a mother. You wouldn't understand. I felt guilty, that's all. And then people tell me I need distractions. I should get out more, jog around Central Park, see friends for coffee, go to a movie. What a joke. I'm not interested. More setbacks, other recoveries. A little over a year after she was born, Lily came home again. There had been fears that she might have developmental or intellectual delays, as is, as is common with babies institutionalized the first year. But for the most part, she tested on track for her age. We still requested physical and occupational therapy, so a couple of these therapists came to our house to work with her. I would usually accompany the physical therapist to the local park, where we would help Lily climb the jungle gym or sliding pond. Lily began speaking early, forming complex sentences and making jokes, flashing a large vocabulary. By three years old, she was quite the chatterbox, and continued to be unusually perceptive and alert to others. At four, she would engage the neighbors in long conversations. She was taken off the catheter, but remained fed by a gastric tube, which was now inserted in her stomach. The line led behind her into a knapsack, which contained a pump and a formula hidden from strangers' sight. Lily herself could forget about its existence, which meant we no longer had to guard every second against her tearing it out, as we had with the nasal tube. She got 45-minute feedings five times a day, and for much of the time when she slept at night. The rest of the day, we could take her off the feeding, and she could run free, more or less, though within our anxious sight. Without getting saccharine, I would like to describe at least some of the journey by which we came to a healthier, happier time. Shell and I, with the invaluable aid of my mother-in-law, Doris, made an enormous effort to normalize our situation. When strangers encountered Lily for the first time, we uttered no allusion to her condition, feeling it was none of their business. The only obvious anomaly was that she was small for her age. The euphemism our household favorite was petite. At seven, she might be mistaken for a five-year-old, at nine for a seven-year-old. But if someone commented on her lack of height, we said nothing about her first years in and out of hospitals. I think we were ashamed, as parents often are, when their children are not completely normal. Though the way we framed it was that we simply did not want to advertise Lily's condition because it might turn her, turn her into an object of pity. A crossroads occurred when Lily had a setback in first grade and had to miss several weeks of school during a return sojourn at the hospital. When she came home, we no longer had the option of taking her off her tube feeding all day. She needed continuous, slow drip infusion. There was some debate in the family that she might be stigmatized if she went to school with the feeding pack in plain sight, 
and homeschooling was discussed as a temporary option. I decided it was more important to send her to school every day to make friends and be socialized, even with the feeding pack attached. Fortunately, her classmates took it in stride and, and embraced her. Children at that tender age can be blessedly tolerant. Her constitution remained very fragile through ages 6 to 10. She still vomited too often and had diarrhea. A new symptom arose. She would sometimes get the shivers and need hot tea and piles of blankets to arrest them. She would neither eat nor drink by mouth, though there was nothing anatomically preventing her from swallowing. It was more a psychological problem. Having missed the earlier milestones, she was afraid of gagging and vomiting and had to learn painstakingly from point zero how to eat, a seemingly natural act for a younger child. It would have been too risky a gamble to cut off her feeding and see if hunger might prompt her to learn more quickly. She was very small for her age and needed every calorie to count. We went through a troop of feeding therapists, all of whom practiced some form of behavioral modification. I remember one of them crooning and zooming the spoon like an airplane into her or onto her clenched mouth. Another counselor leaving the room, abandoning her, so to speak, if she refused a morsel. A third boasted a 100% success rate, but nevertheless gave up on us. Lily resisted eating by mouth for the longest time. She was not the best candidate for rewards and punishment systems, being stubborn and independent, and it must be said, neither Shell nor I ever cottoned to behavioral modification, so perhaps she was picking up on our skepticism. Nor were we snobbers and loners, snobs, I'm sorry, nor were we snobs and loners that we were, willing to join the various parents' support groups that might swap stories about their own children's eating struggles or place Lily in a hospital for a month of strict supervision and tough love. Dr. Oleko, too, was dubious about these approaches and thought we were wasting our time. When she's ready to eat, she'll learn, he said. He was increasingly sanguine that her malabsorption problems would resolve and her body learn to make adaptations. In fact, this is what happened. Her organs adjusted to whatever enzyme or endocrinal imbalance might have caused this illness in the first place. I don't remember exactly how or when, but she began eating, but she began eating normally with a healthy appetite and a preference for Asian cuisine. After careful monitoring that she could gain weight normally through regular ingestion, my wife decided to remove the feeding tube. All the while, Lily was getting taller. Our goal was to see her one day reach five foot, five feet, and now, at 17, she stands at five foot three. She is, for all intents and purposes, a healthy teenager, which means she is snappish, moody, dictatorial, and self-absorbed. <laughs> But she also has a warm sense of humor, writes poetry, acts in plays, makes beautiful ceramics, dotes on her cats, and tolerates her parents reasonably well. Mother and daughter continue to enjoy and at times endure a semi-umbilical attachment. The more Lily's health has improved, the happier, lighter in spirit, and more easygoing Cheryl has become. The transformation in Cheryl is equally remarkable. Lily's sturdiness gives her great satisfaction and I hope a deserved sense of accomplishment that is mostly due to her efforts and years of sacrifice. We still watch Lily microscopically whenever our only child about to enter college comes down with the flu or is simply under the weather for a day. I watch with held breath for some downward spiral that fortunately never recurs. Fatherhood has brought me all that I had hoped. If I did not, if I did not love Lily, 
unconditionally, whatever that means, I do love her to distraction. If because of her I was obliged to enter the kingdom of anxiety, such is the lot of all parents and a small price to pay for the plenitude of her being. Lily's illness has been the most intense, challenging experience of my life. I have my doubts that the pain I underwent taught me a valuable lesson or made me a better person. And certainly the pain Lily underwent seems to me entirely undeserved and unnecessary. But I now know what it means to suffer. I have a set of memory images from that time that will never go away. The curious part is that I have no desire to relinquish them. I sometimes summon these memories, such as Lily getting prepped for an endoscopy or passing under the spaceship dome of a CAT scan and fan them out like a deck of cards just for the fear of it, just for the knowledge that that time is now past. Lily, though she writes engaging personal essays, has never written a word about her hospital time. Perhaps as a residue of our years of circling the wagons and putting up a normal facade, she sees no need to revisit those trials. She has put them behind her like childish toys. Cheryl may have held on longer to her sense of grievance against a world that would not cut her enough slack given the complexity of her caring for Lily, but eventually she too has put it to rest. It is only I, to their eyes, the one who is the least, who was the least involved and hence the least entitled to claim the experience, it is only I who cannot seem to let it go. Is it because it shook me to my very core, or is it because I am too proud of having survived that ordeal to stop dwelling on it? All I know is that a part of me continues to haunt those wards, those corridors, those nurses' stations, while seeming to attend to my ordinary daily life. Thank you. about uh, five or six I wrote, I wrote a version of this um, and then I revised it recently. Um, I, but I wrote, it, I wrote it a version secretly so my wife didn't know about it. Um, but I, I, it, it, is an, it is an important experience to me and I can't, and since I am a fairly autobiographical writer, I can't imagine not making, trying to make some sense of this, of this powerful experience. asked to write an essay for a book. Uh, I'm often motivated by uh, commissions or requests. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
Any other comments or questions? Yes. Yeah. Uh, does your family get annoyed with you for writing that? Does what? So, does your family get annoyed with you? Yes. Yes, I had a lot of trouble with, uh, I had no trouble with delivering Lily, but I had a lot of trouble getting this essay past the censors, the family censors. Um, and, uh, and indeed, the, the first reaction surprised me, which was that um, it's not your story. Why are you taking my story? You know? um, but um, uh, my daughter, who does, who does like to write, was intrigued by it. The writer and her sympathized with me, but, but then there was a, a part of it that she felt I, I, had, to, I had to negotiate a difficult uh, passage, and, um, and I had to make some changes. My wife went through the manuscript, and I, I made as many changes as I could to please her. But, I, but they, they, their first approach was uh, to tell me that I couldn't publish the essay. And then uh, when it turned out that I had no intention of following their instructions, and I was going to publish the essay because I'm the son of a bitch, um, they, they, they changed their tactics, you know, and said, okay, well, you're publishing the essay. I, there was this feeling that um, uh, Lily, uh, was entering, Lily has since gone off to college last week. Uh, and so um, there was this feeling that um, it would be, um, it would be uh, bad for, a student, for her colleagues, the students, the other students, to find out she, she had been sick as a child. Um, I didn't agree with that um, and assured her that um, collections of personal assets are not bestsellers anyway and I'm likely not to, to sell in vast amounts. So I didn't think it would be that big a problem. One more question. Yes. The nature of the sermon is very interesting to me to think about the nature of the audience. Now here there are, I'm going to guess I could characterize three different audiences. Those who have never given birth, right. all males. Those who have not given birth, and as I look around me, quite a few people who've got books on their given birth, like to be born, and quite a few people who have given birth. Right. Now I wonder, as the preacher, excuse the word now, but as a person who is sending the signal, yeah. I wonder if you think of the different types of response which are possible from these three different, uh, perhaps overcategorized recipients. Well, I mean, I've, I've, the, the, the piece of living Lily has, has gotten a lot of a positive response from women who have given birth. Um, you know. Men have shrugged, saying, "Yeah, right." You know, <laughs> we don't count. Um, so, I mean, I think um, the the uh, the second piece, uh, you know, hasn't going into a uh, new book, so I don't know what the response will be. Uh, but uh, you know, this is this is the problem with any personal essay: is that you you try to touch, you, t you hope that your single experience is universal in some way, and. Um, uh, and there have to be translations, and, and anytime a woman reads a book by a man, she's going through a translation with a bit of forgiveness, we hope. Uh, thank you. We invite you to stick around. There's some refreshments left, and we welcome you to join us next month. 
when Granta Magazine will launch their issue on medicine. Those of you who are, who are practicing in the, in the medical profession, you know, I'd be curious to know what you thought about it from your end. Enjoy it very much. I did my